This is the Ask a Death Doula podcast, a platform of free education on how to have the best end-of-life experience possible by knowing how to live your best life now. With experienced hospice, oncology, and wellness nurse, Suzanne B. O'Brien. everyone and welcome to this edition of Ask a Death Doula. I am your host Suzanne O'Brien. Today we are going to have a really exciting channel and podcast. Um, This is a little bit something that's going to be unique for what we've been doing. We usually talk about end-of-life doula trainings and all that goes with that. This is, you know, as we would kind of say, the icing and sprinkles on the cake of the end-of-life doula work, which I love. I have a very strong belief system and affinity for the spiritual part of of end-of-life, and today we are privileged to have an expert in that field. So let me just tell you a little bit about our guest today. We have Reverend Terry Daniel. She is a clinical chaplain, end-of-life educator, and trauma specialist certified in death Dying and Bereavement by the Association of Death Education and Counseling. The focus of her work is to assist dying and grieving individuals to discover a more spiritually spacious understanding of death and beyond. Terry conducts workshops throughout the United States to help the dying and the bereaved find healing through meditative, ceremonial, and therapeutic processes that focus on inner transformation rather than external events. Her work is acclaimed by physicians, hospice workers, grief counselors, and clergy for its pinpoint clarity on the process of dying and grieving and its heartfelt depiction of consciousness beyond the physical body. Her unique form of radical mysticism incorporates elements of Buddhism, shamanism, ancient pagan practices, and more. Um, She breaks down limiting beliefs about forgiveness, divine judgment, and negative experiences. So I'm going to stop there, and you can find her whole bio on the page. We have so much to talk about. So Terry, first of all, thank you so much for taking the time to be here today. You're most welcome. Glad to be here. Okay, great. So the first thing I'd like to ask you is what led you on the path to being this amazing presence and powerhouse for, you know, the spiritual part of this work? How did that all begin for you? Well, I was always metaphysically minded since I was a teenager. So this realm was always quite familiar to me. I read the Tibetan Book of the Dead when I was 19. Good for I you. read the whole book when I was 16 and my family wasn't religious at all. I just did that because I was curious. So this has been always home for me. Um, Fast forward a million years and what really got me started is when my son died. My son was diagnosed with a rare metabolic disorder when he was 10. And he, uh, it was progressively degenerative and he died at 16. So in caregiving years, Um, I really did a lot of research into like, what is death? What do other cultures think death is? What do I want my kid to think about death? Because a 10-year-old kid in America, their only view of death is what they see in movies and on TV. So it's violent and screaming and blood. And I didn't want him to think that. 
So I really started doing a lot of my own research so that I could share some different images of death with him. And that's how that part of it got started. Um, right after he died, um, I became a hospice volunteer. And I did that for probably three or four years before I realized that I wanted to be more than a volunteer because I wanted to be able to talk about spiritual issues with clients and mm -hmm. patients. I'm really not allowed to do that as a volunteer. Right. So that's when I decided to go to school and get a degree in religious studies mm -hmm. and then continue uh, into chaplaincy training and then a master's degree in pastoral care and um, really wanted to get my foot in the door in a, a mainstream credentialed way. Okay. Wow. <laughs> That's a lot. Um, and I didn't know about your son. And so, you know, I just always am so moved and find it so incredibly powerful and generous that people who have had experiences like that, that, you know, are unimaginable to a lot of people, turn that into such a gift for so many others, you know, sometimes that catalyst, um, I just think it's incredible. And I think it also helps, obviously, for you know, you to kind of give forward and to heal, but, but nobody can speak of that place unless you're in it. And very few people are really in that kind of depth. So I, I really just admire you for that and honor you. I agree with you that the um, limitations, and for me, a lot of people know that I was a former hospice nurse and oncology nurse. And, you know, that element of the spiritual we, we're not supposed to go there with clients. We're not supposed to go there with patients, um, even if patients are asking. And they're asking. They're asking because we are so shut down generally in society about anything about death and dying. Nobody knows. And so you're the expert, quote unquote, right? When you come in to help them in this field, because this is what you do, and they're saying, what do you know? Or this is what I'm seeing or feeling. And so can you confirm? And you're not supposed to say anything. It's very frustrating because as I often say, I feel like the physical body of energy at the end of life is most often the most comforting part of the end of life process. And when we say spiritual, it's not a religion, it's an energy form and it shows up for all people usually at the end, whether you're an atheist or if you have deep religious beliefs on, and I found that fascinating, but it brings you that peace that, you know, nothing else really can. So the spiritual component is so big. So it's kind of interesting and ironic that as those professionals in that space we couldn't talk about it so well for, yeah i volunteers are not really professionals in that space and nurses right. really aren't either because nurses are not trained in spiritual care no so i would call a nurse or even a doctor yeah or a social worker uh, a professional in that space spiritual care is a completely different component of end-of-life work and yeah. sadly, the other uh, licensed professionals in that environment do not, did you have any spiritual care training when you were in nursing school? Imagine you probably didn't. Like zero? That's right. And I talk <laughs> to doctors all the time, physicians, you know, who they say in medical school, there's nothing. Zip, zilch, right. zero. Not right. only spiritual. Care, but end of life care. I have two nephews that are very, are young. They're thirty, yeah, thirty two, something like that. And they both just finished their residencies. 
And so that they've been in medical school recently, in contemporary times, right? Yes. And they both told me there was nothing like that at all. There was a palliative care rotation they could have done, but it was an elective optional. And it's palliative care, which is not the same as end-of-life care. Correct. So the new doctors coming out of medical school even today don't have it. Right. So there's nobody there in a clinical setting to talk to these questions about except Kaplan. A hundred percent. And I want to even tell you one step further. The challenge was even as a hospice nurse, if somebody was in seek of that spiritual conversation and I called the chaplain, they have so many patients that they're supposed to see that they couldn't always fit that in, in the time frame that was needed. So it was re it's really challenging within, and that was my hospice, but that, you know, that it, it just, it's a challenging time on so many different levels. And that's why I feel that these wonderful people that are doing these adjunct professions to yeah. fill out, round out, that don't have those kind of heavy limitations or lack of knowledge are so critically important. And that's what you do. So with that being said, I want to talk about your work because I, I have so many questions for you and I want to get it all in if I can. Your unique form of radical mysticism. What does mm -hmm. that mean? Can you share a little bit about that? Um, well, because I have had a lot of academic training mm -hmm. in comparative religion, mm -hmm. I have learn pretty quickly that we need to, and this is really huge, it goes across the board in all of this, we need to reach into other cultures to mm -hmm. see how they deal with death and bereavement. Absolutely. And when you, start, when you start looking into that, and you start mm -hmm. looking at the history of religion and the history of spiritual practices worldwide, you realize that the mystical realm has always been a very close companion to everybody living in Everywhere. this world the yeah. other. Yes. And so we, you know, we, uh, what happened when, when the, the early church got organized, it took us away from that. Right. And it said, you're not allowed to have your own mystical experiences anymore. <laughs> you know, and Jesus and a few biblical people are allowed to have that. Regular people don't get to have that. You need to go through us and we'll tell you what it is. And so we lost that, and we've yeah. been losing more and more gradually over the last 2,000 years. Now, I'm just talking about, you know, in the Western world. Sure. Other traditions, the cultures encourage people to have their own mystical tradition, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and experiences, even, in, even many Judeo-Christian cultures. You know, mm -hmm. certainly the Mormons love people doing channeling and, and that kind of stuff. So it's, it's out there, but yeah. it's not mainstream. So yeah. when I talk about, you know, a radical mysticism, mm -hmm. what I'm talking about is showing us how close it is. It's just right there, mm -hmm. the mystic world, and that we can access it with all kinds of wonderful tools, you know, from meditation to music therapy to, you know, I'm really big on ceremony and ritual. Yes. So that part, that's a really, really good way to uh, access that world. And in that, you're also now connecting with the natural forces of the universe, the elements of nature, earth, air, fire, yes. water, yes. all of them. And yes. that's all stuff that is missing in modern medicine okay. and modern technology. And, and just our world right now. So, so love this. So want people to know that this has always been and it, and it will always be. That energy, now we have just removed ourselves so far from it. So we've become so 
in our mental brain and we're not, we're not grounded, we're not conscious, that we can't tap into that. But like what you're saying is that it's a vibration. So it's literally right there for you. If you quiet your mind, if you deep breathe, if you do ritual or whatever it is, you can access that unconditional, loving, vibrational energy, which is, again, like the most amazing, powerful force that we have. So I love that. Can you talk about the ritual that you might um, share at end of life that could, again, help to facilitate that? Like how you go about? Well, oh, there's, there's so many rituals, you know, and again, this is, this is appropriated or borrowed or learned from other sure. cultures. I'll tell you one of my favorite ones, and this comes from a book called The Smell of Rain on Dust okay. by Martin Prechtel. Mm-hmm. He's an initiated uh, Mayan shaman. And he has this beautiful thing that I use in a slightly different way. But the way he uses it is you're sitting with a dying person. Let's say it's your mother. And you get a piece of string. I don't have one to demonstrate, but a piece of string about that long. And you're sitting there with a dying person and either they are telling their story or you are telling it for them. Okay. So let's say it's your mother and you're going, mom, I remember when you taught me how to ride a bike. And then I remember, you know, when... You taught me how to cook, and then my high school graduation, you bought me a car, and you were always so good, and you helped me through my divorce, and all your memories of your mom, and you roll it up in this little ball. Now you have a little ball of yarn, and you put it in her coffin with her, Mm. or in the cremation with her. Mm -hmm. So she takes this story, this collection, she takes her story with her to the other. And it's the story told from your perspective or hers, depending. So that's like one little beautiful ritual that really connects you with the mystic without offending anybody spiritually. And so I use that in grief workshops and grief counseling where I have the person tell their grief story and all the pain and the stuff they want to release from their body. And then we go outside and we tie the string to a tree and the ball unfurls. And the wind carries the pain. Oh, how nice. Yeah, so, I I mean, you can make this stuff up all day long. There's no limit to what you can do. And these are the things that are completely absent in a clinical setting. They are. Because, unfortunately, there's really no time in the clinical setting. You know, there's no one's fault. It's, it's the way we've set up the structure of the reimbursement and how that works. Like for me as a hospice nurse or oncology nurse running in and basically giving meds, doing an assessment and running out breaks my heart and does not give that patient what they need. And so because there's no... It's not, about, it's not about there not being time. It's, that's not your job. You're, you have, you're doing your job, which is being a nurse. And so the thing is, there's, it's somebody else's job. It's another job description because the nurses don't have time to do that. Well, they don't you have know, time to do that, but it is needed in those positions. And I will tell you that sometimes, especially as the hospice nurse, sometimes that you are their only kind of contact, that there aren't a lot of other people that come in. And if somebody's dying and they have an emotional on their heart and they're going into their transition, nobody's going to get there in time. So the nurse does sort of put that hat on. We need to have the time to do, I can't do that if I'm running out the door. Um, yeah. So yes, I, I agree. And I love these rituals because I think that they're so grounding and important that energy to be released so can i ask you about different cultures that you've studied can you give an example of one or two that you think they have a great way to do dying what how they've done it 
Well, it's, it's not so much how to do dying as much as it is their relationship with death. Mm-hmm. So uh, in the Muslim tradition, mm-hmm. there, there's a requirement that if you see a funeral procession going down the street, mm-hmm. you're supposed to stop everything you're doing and walk alongside it for 40 steps oh, wow. or something. You know, depending now, if you're driving on the freeway and there's a funeral procession, you yeah. can't walk alongside it. So, you know, we would ask you to say a prayer or to just turn off the radio and focus on that funeral procession going, just stop and be with death for a minute okay. in okay. your life to acknowledge. I mean, that's one really beautiful one. Um, the Chinese have a beautiful tradition where they keep an altar in their house to their ancestors. Mm-hmm. And every Chinese house that practices this has this. And every time someone dies, they add that person to the altar mm. and communicate with that person for a year. And they'll put flowers on there. They put coins and money and food and all kinds of stuff for one year to slowly let go of their physical relationship to that person. As opposed to what we do is we give you three days of family leave. People come and bring food to your house for a week and then everybody just forgets you and you're supposed to move on and forget your relationship with the person who's done. And get over it. And get over it. And we don't get over it. That's why we have right. Yeah, and you're not supposed to get over it. No. I, think, I think one of the beautiful things about keeping the memory alive through those beautiful ways of altar, of sitting Shiva, of all of those, is that you realize that you can access the bond and love of that person by that, by that presence and connection. Mm-hmm. That yes, that physical person is not there to give that hug to, but you can feel them, you can have them, you know? And I think that we are so dysfunctional in our end of life in the United States on so many levels and including that one, because we're saying again, three days, that three days, by the way, is a complete train wreck because people don't even know how to, what way is up. Then everyone leaves and they're supposed to get over it. And we've denied them to access that feeling of still having them in their heart, which you can do. Yeah. I'm sorry. Um, So, Part of that comes from, so it's really interesting when you study grief theory. Mm-hmm. So the term grief work mm-hmm. was actually coined by Sigmund Freud in okay. 19. He wrote a paper called Mourning and Melancholy. Okay. And he had the theory about how people were supposed to deal with grief. And the short version is you're supposed to get over it. You feel your pain, you cry, you look at the pictures, you cry. And then the idea is that you cut it off and you're separated from the person. And that was Freud's idea. That was the model in therapy Mm. until about the late 1960s. And what the new grief researchers came up with is something that's now called continuing bonds. Continuing bonds. Yeah, yes, yes. And and that's what we know now. and, And that's what other cultures have always known. And so now this is exactly like you're saying. We don't just cut them off. We continue having that relationship. We just understand that it's in a different form. And that could get very metaphysical and very woo-woo if you want it to, but it doesn't have to. Yeah. So you can say to any person, no matter what their belief system is, you know, your loved one is still somewhere. Mm-hmm. You can feel that. That's why uh, in, in the Hebrew tradition, we sit with the body for the first three days or, or 24 hours, I think it is, because you know the soul is hovering around. The shamans have a beautiful process of opening the chakras to let the soul escape. We all know this. And um, 
it doesn't offend anybody religiously if you can present these ideas to them without a religious slant. Yeah. So let's circle that around to the spiritual body of energy, because if we go back to that premise that there is this spiritual body of energy that's present that can be accessed depending on how grounded you are able to access, then that is omnipresent. So then if our loved one's physical being is not here, that physical body, well, that spiritual body is somewhere and we can access that at any time. So when we, these bonds that they're encouraging or saying are valid now, just validate that spiritual essence of what, you know, is, is really ultimately everything. Well, and you have to, you have to make sure you can put it into the right words for the right people. So if you were talking oh, absolutely. To, yeah. Yeah, to a diehard atheist, you couldn't say it, you couldn't use words like soul and energy because they, they get very uncomfortable with that. So you say, you say, well, it's love. You still love the person. Mm -hmm. The relationship you've had with that person for all these years hasn't ended. No. You're, you're still can... in relationship with them, aren't you? Those memories you have are forever. And that really is love. That's that energy. But it's so interesting because I did have many, and we'll talk about this in a bit, many patients at the end of life that from all different backgrounds, atheists, um, different deep religions, um, no religion, spirituality, tell me the same things as they got very close to end of life, which was really incredible, especially for people who live their life very, very strictly in one thought process connected to spirit. And then at the end came up with a more universal, which was beautiful. And so when I would share these kind of stories on um, platforms and keynote speaking, people would say, well, you know, that's such a beautiful story what that person said, but you know, can you prove it? And so I'm like, huh, but you know, if you, if you go back to physics, if you start to study quantum physics, there is validation there about the vibrational level of the frequency and that that cannot be destroyed. It cannot disappear, that it goes somewhere. So it does. So when people say, yes, it's woo-woo going out there, okay, I, I understand that. But you actually can bring in science, which is what? The most factual type of information we we have data that we have so it, it is but you are right because it's very important especially when we're practitioners to meet the patient and the family where they are we mm -hmm. never push but for you and i we're getting a little bit deep because we're really going to go there and we want to share this amazing opportunity for people to learn more about the spiritual component um so do you have some stories about that you'd like to share possibly about the end of life and again people who might have thought one way but then had a, like what i call spiritual awareness at the end that was a little you know, um i think that a lot of people think and hope that that will happen that people will have a spiritual epiphany at the end my experience has been that it doesn't really happen very rarely you know everybody what what and it's commonly said i'm sure you've heard you know you die the way you live so if you were like an angry terrible mean spirited person all your life you're going to be that way on your deathbed they don't Aww. just you know, you know this is no, what I, i've seen yeah. what i've had hundreds of hospice workers also tell me you know they're you're this you don't suddenly have an epiphany and become all angelic just because you're on your deathbed i'm sure some people do but statistically, it's not, it's, it's an exception more than a rule that it happens that way. Okay. Um, 
What does happen is they will have existential questions, but the existential questions will still be framed within their own reality. And here's a, here's a good example. Um, when I was a hospital chaplain, I had this man, it was a rural area, a lot of farmers and population of people who weren't worldly or educated. And this man had just received a terminal diagnosis of some kind and he called for the chaplain and I came in and these are the words he said to me. Chaplain, where do you think Muslims and meatheads go when they die? Oh. Yeah, that was me. I'm like, huh? Whoa. And so, you know, being trained as a chaplain, I know that what you're supposed to do is you take questions and you turn them back on people. <laughs> yes. You don't answer them. Mm -hmm. So, of course, my answer is... Where do you is, think they go? Right. Exactly. You know, so I, it really doesn't matter what I think. Sure. What matters is what you think. And his big existential question was he felt like he was a sinner and a bad guy for some reason all his life and he was afraid he was going to go to hell where he would spend eternity with muslims because in his mind that's where all muslims go mm. so so the the existential questions that people tend to have mm -hmm. are usually within their own belief system i've very rarely seen anybody change their belief system mm -hmm in the last days of life, but I have seen them ask questions. Sure, yeah, I, I, okay, all right, I hear you with that. Have you had experiences where people at the um, end of life have shared with you that they have been visited or see loved ones who have already died before? Oh yeah, all the time. All, all the time. time, so what do you make of that? And what did they make of that? Um, well, <laughs> Again, depend. You know, depends on the person. Some of most people who've had visitations like that really believe in it because they feel the love. You know, when you're yeah. having an experience like that, you can feel it. It doesn't feel like it's coming from your mind. No. Yeah. So, um, are you familiar with Christopher Kerr? K E R R. No, I'm not. Check, check out his TED talk. Okay. He's the medical director of Hospice of Buffalo. He's been at our Yes, I have. Before. Yes, I have heard. He did a whole thing on this, yeah? Interview. Yes, the Twins and Deathbed Visions of the Dying. He's the coolest guy on earth. Um, so there are, they are studying this, and we are getting good science on that this does happen, and it's not hallucinations. Nope. And of course, we have all the science on near-death experience, which we know cannot be hallucinations because the brain is dead. And if you if you have no brain activity, how can you hallucinate? Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, yeah, it's like it's like yes. I love all this so much because it it opens up just the whole universe, as far as I'm concerned. And you know, it kind of yeah. throws out all the little things we think about that are important and that we've built our perception around. Uh, and leads us to this beautiful space. So I've personally had many patients, obviously, um, because I've worked with so many people, have the near-death, ex uh, the bedside experience of the loved ones who've passed, and the shift that happens for them. The, because if you've been, if you just saw your mom that you haven't seen in 30 years, and, and again, it's a company with that energy of that unconditional love, they're like blown away, and they're also like, see you later. Like they're ready to go. Like if they had any fear about leaving, they completely are different. And it is just, again, it's just wonderful because everyone in that environment is at peace with that. Whether they believe the family believes it or not, when they see their loved ones so content and full of acceptance and almost 
you know, just exhilarated on a certain level. It's, it's pretty magical. So, yeah, so um, yeah. when they do have an experience like that, then they will be, you know, it's a spiritually transformative experience. Well, sure. so, yeah. 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 That, so that for sure that happens when they do change. You know? Yeah, that's beautiful. So before you yeah. had talked about somebody who is really having, you know, thinking they're going to hell, how do you help support somebody if it's at all possible in that space of really a fearful, negative, dark um, feeling of end of life and they're, they're right before it? Okay, so if we're, it depends where they are on their journey, but if yeah. they're... You know, like in hospice care and they yes. really are yes death. we'll look at that because it's different at different you know phases sure. um truthfully as a chaplain the way that we are trained is there's not much you can do other than to just be Love supportive mm -hmm. because again like i said earlier in barring having a mystical experience like we just discussed assuming mm -hmm. they don't have that Mm -hmm. they're going to pretty much stay there. You cannot talk somebody out of their belief system at the end of life. The only thing that can do that is this transformative experience right. of a vision. When they yeah. don't have that, I can't go in there and talk them out of the idea of hell. Number right. one, I'm not supposed to. Right. And number two, even if I tried, I couldn't. So right. all you really do, um, here's, here's one little trick that we do, is you always turns just like you turn someone's question back on them you also turn their faith back on them yeah so a good example that i use a lot in my workshops with hospice workers is i had a guy once who was a biker and he was like this really badass biker guy you know he killed people and oh okay and drugs he'd done really bad stuff in his life and um he was dying and he said you know, I was at an encampment somewhere once and there were a bunch of Jesus freaks there and mm. they saved me. You know, I went over to their camp and I was baptized and I was saved. And, and I've really pretty much been a Christian ever since, but because I did so much bad stuff in my life, I'm still afraid I'm going to go to hell because I don't know if that being saved actually meant anything or did it stick. He's asking me this. And so this is, again, a reflective thing. So I turn it on to him and I go, well, what does your faith tell you mm -hmm. about faith? What does that mean? And he goes, well, once I accepted Jesus, mm -hmm. I'm forgiven. And I said, all right, dude, you're good to go. Well, <laughs> yeah. we're, we're good. That, you're good yeah. to go. I, I, I he was just like, oh, I never thought about that. I guess I really need to just believe in what I say I believe in. And, and really own it. it. Yeah. yeah. And I think that kind of is a good rule for all of it is just owning what your intuition and your inner self tells you. So that's a good uh, segue into your, you know, you talk about forgiveness, the divine judgment and negative experiences. Can you just share a little bit about those three topics? And then I want to talk about the conference. Well, there is no such thing as divine judgment. So we just throw there that out the window. Right. No, okay. of course not. Yes. Um, someone asked me that question just the other day and, and they there's said, no judgment. Sure? and I'm like, yeah, I'm absolutely sure there's no divine judgment anywhere in the universe, you know, but there is processes of growth. So like if you look yeah. at the Buddhist the Tibetan book of the dead, they're guiding the soul through all these levels of consciousness after yeah. death. Yeah. And they see things like demons and fiery pits and caves of darkness, you know, and all this. And, and what they say is, 
these aren't external things. These are projections of your own stuff that you've been carrying with you in your life or your multiple lifetimes. And you're just looking at your own fears and your own darkness. And you're supposed to look at that and heal it as you move toward your next incarnation. It's never external. There is no third party out yeah. there in the universe passing judgment on you. It just right. can't possibly work that way. So uh, what I do with um, dying and grieving people, mostly grieving people, this is actually the topic of my doctoral research, which is about toxic theology and how it complicates the healing process with grief. If you believe that your loved one who took his own life is going to go to hell because of that, mm-hmm. you're not going to heal. Your right. grieving is going to be so caught up with that. Yeah. And so the work you do with someone like that is you really try to give, re-educate them mm-hmm. theologically and show them that there are other ways to look at the divine other right. than this reward and punishment system. But that yeah. takes a long time. You can't do that in the last three days of life. I mean, yeah. you can. You want me to. But, and it's not impossible, but generally it's, it's a pro- yeah, a longer process. You know what I love about that? Well, I've had a lot of patients tell me the same thing, that there's no judgment. You know, they have this, there's no judgment. And it's really beautiful because it makes them look back at their whole life in a different way. But then for us, <clears throat> when there's no judgment, it makes us say, well, then I don't have the right to judge others. And right. I'm not being judged. We are accountable. I always say we're all accountable for our own actions and we'll have to answer to that in our own way. It's just, you don't get excuse, but there's no judgment. There's no condemnation. You know, it's just, it's a beautiful way to, to really hone in and to live our lives. Um, forgiveness plays a huge part in that then. So, you know, when we look back, when we find there's no judgment or can like understand that, and then we go back into that whole thread of, okay, who do I need to forgive? What do I need to be forgiven for? And that again is not just a quick fix like that. It's a process, it's, it's, but it's the most energetic freeing, which I love is beautiful. And I think we kind of just touched on it. The negative experiences are really those opportunities right. for lessons, for growth, for higher. So it's so interesting when there's a quote unquote negative or difficult place, when people come through they are lifted up higher usually just from the learning. And I think, you know, you've probably heard this too, that people who've gotten very ill or even the terminal have said it was the best thing that ever happened to me. And oh, people yeah. say, how can, how can they say that was the best thing that ever happened? Because they got so much more in touch with who they truly are because all of this went away, you know, and they, you know, maybe it was, it's just, it's just incredible. So we want people to know that, again, I think it all goes back to that spiritual energy, just circling well, the big, around. The big thing that you realize when that happens, mm-hmm. it could all be summed up in you recognize that you're not just your body. I mean, if we had not to put it all. into one not sentence, at all. That, that's what happens, right? Yeah. So when you have these traumatic experiences and you come out of that being grateful for the experience, mm-hmm. it's because the thing you learn from that experience Appreciate is that you are just this identity, that there's so much more to who we are. In fact, this is, you know, really a falsehood. You know, yes. not just, we're not just that, we're really not this pretty much at all. Like our true essence is, you know, we strip away the ego of it and the mental and the physical, and we are that beautiful, pure energy, which everyone loves. We love it. We're like, we feel great. That's a really great place to be and to find. I always call it finding our way back home. 
to who we are. So let's talk about the Afterlife Conference. So you have this, yes, amazing, you have this yeah. amazing Afterlife Conference that goes on that I hear lots about. So please tell me about what the Afterlife Conference is. Well, I started it in uh, 2010. Our first conference was 2011. And the reason I started it is because there's a group called the Compassionate Friends, which is a grief group for parents who've lost children. And they were having a conference in Portland that year. And I had just written my first book about after-death communication, and I wanted to speak at their conference. And they said, absolutely not. We don't allow anybody to talk about spiritual stuff, especially mediums and psychics and talking to dead people, because it, it upsets our delicate, fragile audience. And I just couldn't sit still for that. So I said, fine, I'm going to just start my own conference where we can talk about that. And that's how it started. Oh, wow. It was all because of that. And, and the Compassionate Friends really held on to that position for a long time. They're about that much open to it now. They let okay. some stuff of that come in, but they, they really are against it. Um, so that's why I started the conference. And I wanted to reach out to all the people whose books I had been reading and the people whose work I admired. Mm -hmm. And I thought, wow, this is cool. This way I'll get to meet Raymond Moody and Bill Guggenheim and all these people. And that was kind of cool, too. So they all came uh, to the first few conferences. And it just, it just grew. And as I started to expand my knowledge, because I kind of started out with really a focus on after-death communication. But then when I started going to school and getting chaplaincy training and all this, I started to add the academic piece in. Yeah. And I started to add the multicultural piece in. So now the yeah. conference is just such a wide umbrella because we've got all of that. So if yeah. you are really interested in mediums and learning how to develop your own intuitive skills or getting messages from your loved ones on the other side, you've got plenty of that. If you want academic research on near-death experience and deathbed visions and grief counseling, you've got that. Um, we have our shamans who've been with us for the last four or five years. So we have uh, shamanic journeying out of the body and ceremonial practices, just so much. There's just everything that you could wow. possibly want. Yeah. Wow. It sounds fantastic. So when is the next conference? Uh, it's June 6th through 9th, 2019 in Salt Lake City. And okay. the website is afterlifeconference.com. It sounds wonderful. I definitely am going to get to one of these conferences in the future for sure. Um, because it, it's just, again, I feel it's just all coming together. And I think that's just like the, again, the sprinkle and the icing on what this whole great death positive movement is. But when you can, when you can expand your mind, and I love that you brought in the, the studies about, you know, near death experience from, from a scientific standpoint, because I think that everything just fits together perfectly. And so when you can, again, have some of that with then people having different kind of experiences, it just all comes together. And for me, it just opens up a whole different warm and fuzzy world of there's so much more going on than we think. And yeah. it's very comforting to know that it never, it never ends. It never ends. No, it doesn't ever end. And, and you yeah. know, when you were talking earlier about science proving that, I mean, even Einstein said that energy will continue to exist until it, I, I, I'm not a scientist, so I don't really know how, how to say this. I think it's called the theory of the continuation of energy or something like that. Uh -huh. Where like, if there's a ball of fire, 
flying through the universe. It'll just keep going and going and going until it hits a rock or a planet or something. But on its own, it just doesn't stop. And so energy, you know, it's like compost, you know, mm -hmm. you know, the orange peels in your compost pile don't ever stop. Right. They, exist. they turn into something else. Absolutely. Even and 50 years from then, you contribute to the soil. Yeah. And just like the basic law of, of energy and matter, matter can only change form. It cannot be destroyed and it cannot disappear. So you have a choice of a solid, a liquid or a gas. Um, and I think it's really beautiful and comforting to like, just bring that all together and home. And again, this is nothing new. This has been around forever in the past and it will be around forever. We've just kind of lost our attachment to it and, and consciousness of it. And you're helping to bring that back. So I want to Thank you so much for the work that you do. And this is probably a great place to just wrap it up and to let people know that we'll post all the information for the conference and how to get in touch with you on the podcast, on the website here. Um, and thank you, Reverend Terry Daniels. Thank you so much for being here. I really greatly appreciate all of your knowledge and what you're doing for the world. Thank you. Thank you, you're Susanna. You're welcome. Okay, everyone. Thank you so much. And we'll see you in the next episode. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening to another episode of Ask a Death Doula. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a raving review. Subscribe, share, and send your questions. See you in the next episode.